Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manas Chavla, and I'm so thrilled today to be joined by Jonathan McClory. Jonathan is a partner at Sanctuary Council, the author of the Soft Power 30 Index, and he's an expert in soft power, public diplomacy, and cultural relations. In the past, he's held positions at Portland Communications and the Institute for Government. Jonathan, it's so wonderful to have you. Thanks for having me, Manas. Pleasure to be here. So, you know, I want to start off by talking a bit about, you know, your main idea, soft power. You've been at the forefront of studying and measuring this for the better part of a decade at various institutions. And for the purposes of the indexes that you've created, you've defined soft power as the use of attraction persuasion to change another country's behavior. And firstly, I'm just curious if, you know, there that's the one universal definition of soft power or if you've ever kind of run into any opposition on that a particular conception. And also yeah. I'm wondering, do you sort of see any distinction between the way that academics and the way that, you know, practitioners and diplomats conceptualize a soft power? Sure. Um, well, in, in defining soft power for the purposes of my research, I mean, I, I borrowed very heavily from what Professor Joseph Nye, who originally coined the term, w- w- what he laid down as the definition. And, and I think that's, um, that's all pretty clear, right? And uh, that, that, um, definition you quoted would have been, I think, probably lifted from either his 2004 uh, book or the 1990 um, essay that that he wrote, setting out soft power. Um, that that said, I mean, it's you know, it's always helpful whenever having these conversations just to make sure everyone's on the same page with with definitions. Um, when I do that, I tend to start with. Um, defining soft power by what it isn't, so against hard power, right? And hard power being the use of coercion through either military force or the threat of force, um, economic sanctions, or or also it doesn't have to necessarily just be negative. It can be paying somebody to do something, right? Inducements of payments is effectively hard power as well. Um, so soft power is not those things. It's it's attraction. It's persuasion. Um, it's getting others to to want what you want. Um, and another thing that that Joseph Nye says um, or, or or writes quite often is the idea that um, you know soft power's uh, ability is about not power over others, but power with others. Right, bringing them onto your side and then working in concert towards some objective or goal. Um, I think. I've never really received um, pushback, I suppose, on on that kind of definition. Um, but where you run into to trouble, and in, in some ways this is a, a mark, I guess, of um, the, the success of soft power as a concept, is the way that the meaning has been stretched a bit um, to, to, to be deployed on you know, any number of things that it just doesn't necessarily have a you know, business on. Um, uh, uh, being deployed on. So, I mean, one example is, uh, you know, of course, um, you know, I have a I have a Google alert that I get on soft power, right? So, you know, every day I just want to see what what's popped up, any news articles or whatever. Um, but some of the stuff that you wind up getting with this Google alert that has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, the soft power that we're talking about. Um, yeah, it's ridiculous. So from, you know, things, just sort of description of, um, I don't know, deployed in fashion or, um, you know, whatever it might be, it, it just gets stretched a bit. Um, and, and that's something we have to be careful of. While, and that's why I do think it's it's worth whenever having these discussions or, you know, settling in to, to write a, a long piece on it. It's, it's always worth, um, might feel redundant, you know, given the audience will probably know, but it's, it's worth going over the definitions. But that's, basically how I would uh, define it. And then 
to your second question around academics versus practitioners, I wouldn't necessarily say there's a divide between academics and practitioners exactly, because I think, you know, not all academics will think about it in the same way. I think roughly everyone will have the, the at least IR academics will have the, the, you know, the same kind of idea in mind for the definition. They'll, you know, they'll differ on the extent to which they think it's effective or, or useful or, or, you know, germane. Um, whereas practitioners, I, I, I don't think um, that, yeah, there's a, there's a division there. I think likewise, there'll be practitioners who think this isn't, you know, as important and it's all about hard power. I think that's probably more the divide, whether you're an academic or a practitioner, are you more kind of realist minded? Um, are you more, you know, constructivist or, um, you know, neoliberal institutionalist, whatever it, whatever it might be. I think that's probably the divide rather than a kind of, yeah, academics versus practitioners. Mm, really interesting. And I mean, since we're doing this virtually because of the pandemic, I'm also really curious to know how that perception of soft power you just described is evolving as a result of the COVID pandemic. Uh, because of a recent publication you conducted, uh, you know, a series of roundtable discussions of the future of soft power and public diplomacy, um, I'm, I'm curious, what were a couple of the biggest takeaways and was there anything that surprised you? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things we, we set out to test uh, with this recent research project was obviously we wanted to get a sense of who are the winners and losers in terms of soft power and reputation, um, how, you know, how different countries have handled the pandemic. Um, but taking one step back from that, we wanted to test whether the way people think about soft power, the way that they form their opinions of countries, had that changed at all as a result of the pandemic? Um, and so in, in this research, I mean, we convened these roundtables and, um, and during these roundtables, we also ran flash polling, um, you know, so we would have immediately comparable data across these um, seven different groups, which are, you know, spread out all over the world. Um, and what we found was that, yeah, overwhelmingly, I think it, I think it was 91 or 92% of, of um, our participants said that they had changed either the, the composition or the weighting of the factors that, that shape their opinion of, a, of another country. So essentially, it, it, it had changed the way they think about the soft power of countries. Is, is country X or country Y attractive? Um, the pandemic has, has uh, had an effect on that. Now, I think where I would be a bit self-critical um, although we were sort of limited by you know, the amount of time we could detain all of these um, important and busy people, um, was that we didn't drill down into that enough. So we, we tested that, yes, it, you know, they have changed the way they, they, they think about um, countries and form their opinion. And so the factors that, that um, account for a country's soft power have changed. But we didn't get in exactly to the how. Um, so, you know, so what does it mean? Now, we, you know, we can, we can extrapolate from this and say, okay, well, if the pandemic has changed the way people think about countries, um, probably has something to do with government competence. You know, it probably has something to do with their, um, uh, their public health infrastructure, um, might have something to do with their kind of life sciences industry, pharma industry, innovation, um, research capacity, uh, willingness to, to collaborate on um, public health and, and, and things like that. Um, don't know that for sure. That, that's certainly something that we want to explore going forward. And this, this new research report is very much, you know, under a sanctuary council banner, it's, it's our kind of first foray into, um, uh, into research in this space. I mean, I've been doing it for, for a long time myself, but, 
um, under under a sanctuary council banner. It's new. So this is a platform for us to, to build on. So we plan to do more work and research in this space. And, and that's certainly one of the areas I want to drill down in quite a bit more. So that that was kind of the big, for me, that was the, the really big takeaway that, you know, these people that that are, you know, working in and around, you know, experts, practitioners in foreign affairs and public diplomacy, that that they had changed the way they they think about soft power countries, the way they shape their opinion of countries. Um, and then the things that, I mean, maybe it wasn't a huge surprise, but it just confirmed you know, what we sort of assumed, which was, um, you know, the U.S. Is, has done horribly out of this. Um, you know, and we, on our survey, it was, in fact, 100% of, of the respondents said that the U.S. came out a loser as the result of the pandemic. Now, it's worth saying that we did these roundtables at the very end of 2020. So um, it, it was clear that uh, President Trump had lost the election. But he was still in power as a as a as a lame duck president. Um, so you know the, the the way that went since Biden has come in, obviously you know there's a huge step change in the vaccine rollout and and all of that. The U.S. has done better. I would say end of 2020 was probably the the nadir of uh, America's performance in in handling the pandemic. Um, but at least it confirmed that. And then obviously because the you know the bilateral relationship that is going to shape global geopolitics for, for the next few decades is U.S. and China. So, of course, we asked our participants, well, how did China do? Um, you know, were they winner or loser or no impact or, you know, you're not sure. And a majority felt that China had, had come out a loser, effectively, that had a negative impact on Chinese soft power. But it was much more mixed, much more nuanced. Um, there were some people who thought China came out pretty well as a result of the, the, the pandemic. Um, and it was it was mixed uh, geographically as well. Um, so it was actually Europe and Asia are participants in those two groupings who who felt um, China perhaps did a, a, a bit better than, um, than than others were willing to to give them credit for. Um, so I'd say those those were some of the big ones. I mean, the other thing was, as you say, we're doing this virtually, and that that was kind of the impetus for the research is we wanted to understand how uh, have, have uh, diplomats coped with, you know, this being the only way that you can engage with people. Um, and the consensus view was that, you know, they could, public diplomats could get about 50% of what they needed to get done. Um, they could manage with, with just, you know, um, digital means. Um, which is both encouraging and depressing, I think, at the same time. I mean, it's quite good when you think you can't have human contact, but you know, we could still do about 50% of what we need to do. But that's that's a big loss. I mean, losing 50% of, of what you would like to be able to do um, as a diplomat is that's a huge blow. Um, and 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 while that was majority, I mean, there were people who said we can only you know do 25% of you know what we what we'd like to be able to do and and, and a small number said, you know, we, we, we can't operate effectively. Um, so that's worrying. And then I think the other big theme that came out was, um, this was particularly strong in the US and UK groups, was the need to link domestic politics and the day-to-day -day lived experiences of citizens with foreign policy, foreign policy development, but also the practice of um, in, engagement and, and public diplomacy. Um, uh, th this is, this is a, 
a, a big deal, I think, um, for the UK and the US. And no easy answers on on how exactly to do it, um, but it was seen as a, um, a, a, a big priority for, for those two countries going forward. Yeah, no, really fascinating. I'm glad you kind of touched on the American aspect of it because that's certainly something that caught me by surprise. I mean, the overwhelming plural, plurality of respondents uh, in your sort of roundtable discussions did not think that American soft power could uh, recover to pre-Trump levels uh, within the foreseeable future. And, you know, I personally, I'd say I sort of disagree. I mean, I'm not saying the U.S. is going to magically regain its dominance on the world stage overnight, but, you know, I do think the fundamental contributors to sort of American soft power, uh, like some of the things that you've measured yourself on the index, I mean, I don't think Trump was able to damage many of those in a particularly irreversible way. Like you think, you know, American tech companies still lead the way in connecting the world. American universities are still, you know, leading every field. Uh, America's still one of the best places to start a business. Um, you know, and, and that's not to minimize the fact that obviously Trump frayed relations with a lot of allies, especially across the pond, uh, in a very serious way. But again, like you mentioned, you know, Biden's response to that, uh, it hasn't been as sort of, you know, replete with showmanship as, as Trump's might have been, but in a, you know, a bit more than 100 days, he's gotten quite a bit done, you know, brilliant vaccine rollout, social welfare programs, um, a lot of sort of, you know, foreign engagement, uh, Secretary of State Blinken right now, you know, met with Asian allies during the Quad Summit. He's in the Middle East right now, easing tensions after the Israeli-Palestinian crisis. So like, before I ramble on any further, it seems like they're, you know, they're doing all the right things. Um, and, you know, it's, again, it's hardly been more than 100 days. But I want to get your personal take on this. I mean, how feasible do you think is sort of the American goal of regaining pre-Trump levels of soft power? And then what do you think Biden needs to do to get there? Um, so I take your point. Um, you know, it's kind of a recurring theme with the U.S. anyway, that, that American soft, soft power, um, it ebbs and flows. Um, you think back to the you know Vietnam War, for example. I mean that 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 uh, was not a great time for American influence or, or soft power, or even, you know even before then. Or I suppose it was happening concurrently. But you know civil rights struggle and um, how far the U.S. has had to come on that still has a ways to go. Um, you know that was used very effectively by Soviet Union propagandists. You know look at look at the way U.S. treats its uh, minorities. Um, uh, and then Iraq invasion, you know, Bush administration, again, U.S. Um, uh, reputation soft power was, uh, was pretty low then. Um, and it does bounce back. I mean, it, it absolutely bounced back um, under the Obama administration. I mean, and not just in sort of the work that I've been doing on measuring, but if you look at, you know, Pew Global Attitudes or, um, you know, Simon Anholt's Nation Brand Index, you know, the U.S. had a huge rebound from the end of the, the Bush administration to Obama. Um, but having said that, um, I think, and I'm, I'm certainly not the only one to say this, I think we referenced a couple of different pieces um, that were recently in foreign affairs in, in, in the report, um, that now in, in the back of allies' minds will be this sort of, okay, if you elected Trump once, you're capable of doing it again, or someone like him. Um, and I think what worries Ally so much is the, you know, the, the breakneck speed at which he just yanked the U.S. out of agreements that were made under the Obama administration, which then has allies thinking, if I, you know, sign X deal with you um, or a treaty or there's whatever American commitment has been made, 
can that survive the next administration? And, and that will always be um, in, in the backs of, of allies' minds. I mean, we'll see what happens in the, you know, after the, um, the, the 2024 election and, and maybe one more cycle without someone so capricious and, um, you know, damaging to uh, the, the um, forgive me for using the term, but the, the international rules-based order, um, th- th- then maybe that, th- those feelings and those concerns will recede a, a, a bit more and, and, ju- and become just a sort of faint afterthought. But right now, I think they are still, they're, they're very much there. And so it is a problem. But I, do, I take your point that Trump wasn't able to damage those kind of bedrock institutional soft power assets um, like Silicon Valley, like Hollywood, like um, you know Ivy League universities, um, all of those things that that continue to make the U.S. attractive, no matter who's in in charge, and that has always been you know thinking about the soft power thirty and the breakdown of the the way that that the U.S. performance that performs in that and and its soft power resources, it's always been strongest in the areas that have nothing to do with government, um, which is and this is a point that Joseph Nye makes um, a lot, not just with respect to the US, but also with respect to China, and that China is kind of handicaps itself in a way in that it has no civil society. Civil society and you know those things that exist outside the control of government um, are so important, and there is nothing in China without the state, effectively. You know, there, there is no civil society, and that, that really limits um, Chinese soft power. Um, Anyway, I'm sort of rambling a bit on that, but I, I, I basically, I would say I probably fall in line with the plurality right now. My immediate concern is I don't think in the next, before the next election that the US will recover beyond, will be able to hit those sort of, you know, pre-November 2016 highs. Um, but, you know, if we can get through another election cycle with someone who is, you know, in the White House that is going to broadly um, champion the rules-based order and and wants to, um, you know, promote and ensure American leadership in ways that are seen to be, and in fact are good for, for the global community, as opposed to regress back to America first and, you know, you losers are all on your own. Um, then, 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 yeah, I, I suppose in in the in the more medium term, it's it's possible. Um, I'm just I'm not super optimistic right now, but it's still I it's, I think it's a huge recovery um, from where we were this time last year. Certainly, um, even mm-hmm. you know that that sort of the, to me that well, not just to me, but I think to uh, data in my research, but but other studies as well. That 2016 is that high watermark, and and we're some way away from that, even if we've made great strides. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I, I do completely take your kind of first point, which was, you know, the very specific way that uh, Trump damaged relations with allies and that, you know, they're not sure if, if, you know, they can trust the Americans in these sort of agreements right now. And I think that's not only with allies, but, you know, even potential, you know, competitors, if you might put it, we're seeing that right now front and center uh, in the negotiations taking place in Vienna. Uh, between Americans and the Iranians uh, indirectly through the Europeans. And, you know, both sides want to get back into the nuclear deal, but there's all these sort of wild complications for months uh, about, you know, the Iranians still aren't confident, neither are the Europeans to some extent, uh, that 
you know, this is going to be more than a one-term deal and, mm. and they want some sort of clause that binds them to that, you know, despite administrations changing or something like that. Mm. Um, but I also really liked your point about, uh, you know, the, the part that government plays in American soft power being, you know, comparatively minimal compared to sort of other countries. Uh, and, that, and that's one thing I've noticed. Uh, we, you know, did a client project recently at London Politico uh, and, comparing kind of Chinese and Russian types of soft power uh, to the American ones, it, you know, this might just be perhaps my Eurocentrism, but it, it seems like the American variant of soft power is a lot more organic. It stems from businesses, it stems from tech, it stems from civil society. Um, and if you look at Chinese soft power, you know, admittedly, China is a very rich culture, but it's still bolstered by, uh, for instance, the CCP's program of establishing these Confucius Institutes abroad. Mm. Uh, or, you know, maybe it has, you know, great sort of economic incentives, but it's still established by that very state-led Belt and Road Initiative. So I'm wondering, do you, do you agree with that kind of distinction between Western countries and non-Western countries and the organic and sort of more artificial um, manufactured types of soft power? Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, there is nothing in China without the state or at least, a, you know, a heavy state backing or, or sanction. Um, and you're right. I mean, there's, uh, Chinese culture is incredibly rich, um, heritage culture, culture, but contemporary culture as well. I mean, if you look at, say, I suppose right now, if you were to, you know, kind of poll people, what the the, the most famous um, contemporary Chinese artist right now is Ai Weiwei, um, who is effectively in exile, and you know, the the, the government is not a fan of his at all, um, and. Uh, and and it's weird because any other well certainly sort of you know Western country would be very happy to give a, a platform to to one of their artists uh, like that, but in, in in China it's not the case. And then um, Nomad, the film which just won the um, Academy Award for Best Picture and I think Best Director, was directed by a, a Chinese-born film director, and there's hardly any mention of her apparently at all in Chinese media um, or social media because um, she doesn't quite fit the you know the 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 um the bill i guess um but you're right it's it's kind of about um heritage culture it's state backed um and and i think there there is i mean one of the things that came out in the the roundtable discussions from this last research project is that there was a sense that there's you know kind of growing distrust in government anyway and i i think that's low citizens having less trust in their own government but that also holds true for having trust in other governments and if that's the case, then you know, public diplomacy efforts, whatever they might be, that that seem to have a very heavy government fingerprint, are going to be less effective because there's there's greater um, cynicism or, or skepticism about sort of that that government backed um, initiatives or, or platforms. And um, yeah, there, the, you know, there there is no non-government backed platform when it when it comes to um chinese outreach um so i i i think that creates problems however i mean you know there's a lot of talk about sort of where is the the theater for for competition and in in, in influence between the us and, and china there's a lot of talk of africa and latin america and you know those countries that aren't democratic where you're just speaking to a sort of elite um, or, or just the government, and they don't really want to be lectured about um, democratic reforms or human rights reforms or whatever. I mean, that can also put China at, at an advantage. So it all kind of depends on um, 
you know, who are you trying to engage with? What, who, who's the audience of effectively, right? What's the, what's the context there? Um, so it, it, it's heavily dependent on who are you trying to, to talk to. Um, but I definitely agree with that, that wider point about um, sort of inorganic versus purely state controlled efforts. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and while we're talking about kind of Africa and Latin America and Central Asia and, and the way that they extend Chinese influence, I mean, th that's one thing that's always puzzled me is like a large part in a large way that they do that is through all these Chinese economic incentives, you know, building dams, building roads, building massive energy grids. Um, and and I'm wondering what's your take on that in terms of is that soft power, is that hard power? Because on the one hand, it's sort of like, you know, you're giving these people sort of uh, very generous loans that they wouldn't get from the Americans unless they changed into, you know, quote unquote, more democratic institutions. But then on the other hand, uh, there's a lot of sort of alarmist, you know, commentary about the way China engages in debt trap diplomacy. And mm -hmm. essentially, it's just an instrument of coercion. Um, so, yeah, how, how would you look at that? Is that soft power? Or is that hard power? Um, uh, blurred lines for sure. Um, I, I, I don't think it's simply one or the other. Um, I think elements of it are soft power. Um, but then yeah, when it does become dead entrapment or, I mean, that then does work out to, to coercion, but at the same time, um, you know, it, it, it could just be inducements. Um, you know, it's just paying them, uh, paying people to, to bring them around to what you want them to do. So, um, it, it, it's very great. I think there are a lot of missed opportunities. I mean, I know one of the criticisms as well of, of um, big Chinese infrastructure projects in, in um, emerging market uh, countries is that, you know, they bring all of their own engineers and their own labor, essentially, and there's no kind of skills transfer or anything like that. Um, so th there, there would be an opportunity to um, you know, train up by the engineers and um, uh, and the construction workers and and what have you to make sure that all these can be you know maintained and that there's just a, a, a level of um, uh, uh, well skills transfer, skilling up, what have you. But if it's all just sort of you know we come in, we do this, and then we leave, and that's it. Um, and by the way, where's our money back? Um, that's not uh, that that doesn't strike me as as soft power, but. I, you know, if it was done in the right way with more of that, it, it could be, but, um, but it's, it's, it is a blurred area. These aren't sort of perfectly distinguishable all the time. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it might go farther than that. I don't think it's just, you know, they're kind of, there's no skills transfer. It might even be kind of a negative impact because I was reading something yesterday and it was about how, you know, China built, uh, almost entirely financed, built the African Union headquarters. Uh, and, you know, a couple of years later, uh, some engineers in it realized that basically every desk, every wall, uh, you know, even glasses were tapped. Uh, you know, they were secretly kind of relaying information back to China, leaking emails, leaking phone calls, voice messages. Um, and they've built, you know, the parliaments of seven countries. And I think there's only one country in Africa that doesn't have any Chinese development projects yet. And, and you know, maybe it's sort of a slow realization to that uh, kind of trend. Um, but I think it's certainly one that, you know, eventually might harm their soft power or, you know, other countries' tendencies to accept these sort of ostensibly generous economic programs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and also while we're talking about China, 
I mean, I'm going to tackle the human rights aspect a little bit because, you know, like you pointed out in the Portland report a couple of years ago, a lot of the disillusionment with China, China and Chinese values and influences is it's a consequence of, you know, the crackdown in Hong Kong, say, or the detainment of a million Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. Um, and I'm wondering, to what extent do you think these sort of very serious human rights abuses, to what extent do that, does that shape the perception of soft power? How much of a difference do they really make? Yeah, well, I, th I think... It is making a difference in countries where those values are important, you know, where um, people would expect human rights to be expected, uh, respected of, of their own government and, and as a result, others. Um, but amongst the leaders of, of other countries that are autocratic or, or, or not terribly democratic, um, they don't really care. So it just it boils down to you know who's the audience again, um, who are we talking about? And um, I do think I think there are real problems um, with the Uyghur, Hong Kong, um, and uh, yeah, I, the, the, there is no real answer for it apart from kind of anger from Chinese diplomats. I and mean, we saw the exchange in Alaska, right? Just the sort of you know how dare you lecture us, that sort of thing. Um, so they don't really have a response for it. And, um, you know, it was quite remarkable seeing in the run up to just before the, the um, uh, Biden transition, the European Union trying to push through that, that trade investment deal with China. Um, and, and we look at it now and it's, it's frozen in the EU parliament after, you know, an ex a tit for tat exchange of sanctions based around human rights concerns and it's going nowhere. Um, so to me, like that's clearly cause and effect of you are not respecting human rights. There are all these concerns. And the result is, well, this you know, trade investment deal isn't going to happen now. I, I, I can't imagine it will be um, recovered and you know, certainly in, in the near future. I think that's effectively on ice for um, you know, however many years. So, so yeah, I think it's a huge problem. Um, again, in, in those countries where things like human rights are important, but where they're not, then I don't think it, it, it matters all, all that much. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think that that's quite an interesting dilemma in the way we think about soft power, because we always think about it, or at least traditionally, like, you know, country A has soft power X, B has soft power Y, but, you know, in large degree, it's contingent on, you know, the, the sort of who the soft power is being exerted upon uh, and the kind of receiving side of it. And, you know, all these countries you think might actually be the ones opposing the Uyghur crisis really aren't, right? Like you think about the Muslim countries in the Middle East, you think about Pakistan. I mean, Pakistan recently has been helping China uh, arrest some of the people that have escaped Xinjiang and the detention centers there. Um, and so how do you think we can kind of go about shaping our understanding around that? Because I can imagine it's quite hard to drill it down empirically. Once, you know, you think about a country, it's easier to just put down a number and say that's its soft power, but it's much harder to classify its soft power than all, you know, other types of actors. Um, but, but how do we kind of add that nuance to this discussion? Yeah, I mean, I think with um, you know studies like the Soft Power Thirty, it's it's helpful to have this sort of aggregate global sweeping view. As you say, this is country X's soft power is this much, you know, versus the other. It's still kind of helpful to have that overarching um, picture. However, when you get down to an operational level, then then you absolutely do have to be drilling down to what exactly are we talking about? What's the issue? What's the objective? And then who is the, I hesitate to use the word, target or, or, or audience, right? Um, and really, I mean, that's when 
you know, certainly work that I've done, that's when you're drilling down into a specific country. So you sort of set that aggregate picture to one side and, and say, okay, well, what do I know about the way, to take your example, um, uh, either Pakistani leadership or Pakistani public feel about um, Chinese foreign policy or, you know, whatever it might be. You really have to drill down into the specific country or at least the region. Um, uh, otherwise, that kind of global sweeping view operationally, it's not going to be that helpful. I mean, in the, the, the way that I had designed, not just Soft Power 30, but the previous index um, that I built at the Institute for Government, um, was the ability to do that, to, to, to break down by country or region, particularly on the subjective side of the data, um, and answer some of those questions. Because you, you have to drill down to that level um, if, it, if it's going to be operationally useful. I mean, it, the only reason or the, the only instance where a kind of big sweeping global view might be useful is when you're dealing with something that is totally globally all encompassing. So, I mean, maybe something like climate change or, um, uh, you know, or, you know, well, uh, I mean, vaccines, we haven't, we haven't touched on that yet. And I, uh, you know, but that, you know, is, is, is the global public going to trust the vaccine that country X has developed? Um, you know, or are they going to run a mile from it? You know, looking at say Pfizer versus AstraZeneca versus Sputnik V versus um, uh, Sinovac and, and and that sort of thing, where a global picture could be useful. But if if it's quite specific stuff, then you've really got to drill down to region or individual country. Yeah, and again, sort of taking this China point a bit further. I mean, but also more broadly, when these kind of human rights abuses happen, what what do countries do? to amend their status and amend their kind of soft power influence on the world stage? Um, or to sort of put it in a more abstract way, is soft power fungible? You know, is there any amount of Chinese investment in Africa or Russian support in Central Asia that can somehow make up uh, or offset sort of other detriments of soft power? Or will that always be, you know, something kind of ineradicable? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's sort of the great question of all power, I suppose, in international relations, right? Is it is it fungible? Um, <laughs> yes and no. That's such a cop-out answer, but but yes and no. In some areas, I think it, it 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 will help and it is transferable, but not universally so. And I think, you know, some of the attacks against soft power from, you know, colleagues who 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 might be of a more realist mindset um would 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 make that point exactly. Well, you know, it can't get you this or it can't get you that. And, and I think that's true. And I, I would never, even though as somebody who's dedicated a lot of time to the 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 study of soft power I, I would never advocate it as the sort of universal silver bullet um it is one tool in in the in the foreign policy toolbox and in some cases it's it is the best tool to use um but it's 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 not the only one and in, and in plenty of cases it, it won't be the best tool to use i mean sometimes you do need old-fashioned um hard power in some situations um yeah. So, uh, I, 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 and to go back to your kind of original point in question about how do you offset human rights abuses? I mean, <laughs> you stop doing it. <laughs> um, that you know, that's really the only way um, uh, uh, to do it. And the, and and in particular, it's you know, a, a lot of countries because when you get into some of the practical uses of, of soft power, you start to stray into things like country reputation or, or nation branding. You know, it's a lot of those kind of middle income rising countries that, that want to, um, 
get, sometimes deservedly so, but they, they want credit for progress that they've made in either economic development or political progress, whatever it might be. Um, and and if, if they have a history of problematic human rights, I mean, you can't just whitewash that away, right? I mean, the only way to truly deal with it is to stop doing those things and 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 make amends for them, you know, through through action as opposed to, um, you know, well, maybe if we build more libraries and museums, then everyone will forget about the fact that we have gulags or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so I, I don't think there is, you know, one particular, you know, pursuit of a soft power resource that can offset something that is, um, you know, critically negative for a country. You just kind of can't do it. And 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 those countries that are at the 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 top of, you know, again, whether it's soft power thirty or kind of somewhat similar studies like the um, Anhalt, you know, Nation Branding Index or whatever, they 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 have a a great balance across um, all these different concerns and points. And I mean, one thing I would say as well is. Um, from the soft power 30 index, um, and I think this is echoed in, in other studies as well, you know, the thing that really drives opinion, or at least, you know, did uh, in, in these studies, 2015 to 2019, um, the biggest factor shaping opinion of a country is, is based on whether or not they're seen as, you know, being a force for good in the world. Are they making a positive global contribution or, or are they a net detractor from the global community? Um, and even if it happens within the borders of one single country, um, I still think those those human rights abuses have you know they have a negative impact. And well, we've I mean we've just seen this week, right? The spillover that can happen when a, a you know a, 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 a egregious human rights abuser like Belarus um, can can make those human rights abuses international very quickly. Um, in ways that were unexpected with this, um, you know, outrageous act of air piracy. And even some have called it, you know, state-sponsored terrorism. Um, and that all comes from, you know, being a horrible actor in terms of human rights. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there's, there's no really getting around that. And that, that will continue to be an albatross around China's neck. Again, in those countries where human rights and, um, you know, respect for human dignity are important. Mm-hmm. And as this kind of discussion of soft power, you know, evolves, I mean, I noticed the academic literature on this and most of the research around this has largely been on, you know, soft power of countries. But what would you say sort of about the devolution of that power to non-state actors like, you know, maybe businesses or civil society or extremist groups? Because just intuitively, I feel like there's some amount of soft power that, you know, say the Taliban has that's allowed it to, you know, keep sort of quite a formidable response to the largest army on earth uh, and keep, you know, the strong that it has over Afghanistan or, you know, even some amount of soft power that an entity like Tesla or Facebook has that goes beyond its balance sheets. Um, you know, do you think that's an area that deserves our attention, the soft power of non-state actors? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely think so. And um, uh, to your Taliban example, I mean, in, I think it was the future of power. Joseph Nye's 2010, 2011 book. Um, I think it's in that one that, you know, he talks about, um, again, this goes back to the point of it's all about the audience. Um, uh, but he talks about the soft power of Al-Qaeda um, and uh, um, Osama bin Laden, um, who I suppose was still alive at the time. 
um, that, you know, to the right audience, those sorts of values and, um, and principles and, and, and I suppose policies and action will, will be attractive. Um, but, uh, yeah, companies as well. I mean, international organizations, definitely think tanks, pressure groups. Um, yeah, they all, all have an important role. Um, I also think, um, you know, subnational governments as well, regions, cities, um, have a big role to play. Um, not, not just in sort of how do they, you know, shape a positive image and then promote themselves abroad. But if you look at, um, for example, the C40 group of mayors, um, you know, that, that have come together and they're, they're trying to advance the, you know, combating climate change agenda. And those are effectively non-state actors. Um, and, and even individuals, Greta Thunberg, um, you know, uh, Malala Yousafzai and what she's done for, you know, girls' education. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think beyond just recognizing it, I mean, the next step is then, okay, well, okay, you know, can we quantify it in any way? And, and how do we do those sorts of things? And um, that, I think, would be very interesting. I mean, the only thing that really comes to mind, and, and I think it's just a, you know, a group of editors and correspondents sitting around a table, is like the you know, foreign policy magazines, um, whatever they call it, the Global 100 Thinkers or whatever, which is sort of like that, at least for, for individuals. Um, but I think that that would be really interesting to try and um, quantify you know, who really has this soft power and how is it wielded and those sorts of things. So I, I think that's definitely ripe for, for further exploration. I certainly, um, I certainly agree with the, the, the premise. Mm -hmm. No, brilliant. I mean, that was a really, really fascinating conversation, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And to find out more about London Politica, please visit our website, londonpolitica.com and follow us on LinkedIn. But yeah, no, that's all for this episode, folks. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I'll see you next week.